Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. People gain must have made a certain amount of sense to the bewildered ambassadors who gossiped together in the courts of Europe. How else to explain the astonishing rise of Elizabeth Woodville, the unlikeliest queen consort in English history? Not least among her imperfections was the fact that she was an Englishwoman. Since the Norman Conquest, a matter of four centuries, no king of England had married one of his subjects. The last to do so had been Edward the Confessor, who married the impeccably noble and virginal Edith of Wessex in 1045. As an English subject, Elizabeth brought with her no obvious diplomatic gain, and no useful foreign alliance. Quite the contrary, her large family was already noted for their social ambition and obvious desire to advance themselves by marrying into other families' titles and estates. With two sons, a father and more than ten siblings, Elizabeth brought with her obligations for royal favour and grants that would have to be met in part out of the Crown's precious resources. She promised even less to the Crown than the impoverished Margaret of Anjou had brought when she married Henry VI in 1445. Indeed, Edward's sudden marriage threatened to do active damage to England, both at home and abroad. The French king was completely blindsided by the news of Elizabeth's presentation. The first he knew of it was when Warwick and Wenlock failed to appear at Saint-Omer for the conference concerning Bona of Savoie. Isabella of Castile would much later complain that she was turned in her heart from England for the unkindness the which she took against the king, for his refusing of her and taking to his wife a widow of England. It's almost certain that Warwick, like most of the rest of the English peerage, was also taken by surprise. He had fair cause to grumble a bit, as it was reported by one chronicler, over his young protégé's eccentric, apparently love-struck choice of wife. Puzzled observers wrote that the marriage caused great displeasure to many great lords and greatly offended the people of England. It would be foolish to totally disregard love, the most common contemporary explanation, as an important factor in the Woodville marriage, but it is also possible, with hindsight, to detect a line of political thinking that may well have allowed Edward to convince himself that his love match was also a tool of useful public policy. Could it be that the romantic writers and tattling envoys who gossiped about the king's incontinent libido missed the broader political dimension of the Woodville wedding? Unquestionably, in 1464, Edward was a charismatic and extremely self-willed 22-year-old who had enjoyed no apprenticeship or education to prepare him for wearing a crown and was essentially inventing the role as he went along. 
But he wasn't completely reckless or heedless of convention, and his crown had been won at a greater personal cost than that of any Plantagenet king before him. Perhaps, then, we can see his choice of Elizabeth Woodville as fitting into a pattern of bold and well-intentioned, if occasionally very naive, kingship that characterized at least the first five years of Edward's reign. In the spring of 1464, Edward was still fighting for his throne. Part of this effort was military, and part involved a concerted campaign of persuasion and appeal to his realm for allegiance. Specifically, he made it a plank of his reconstruction to reach out wherever he could to the exiled and defeated Lancastrians. The most prominent Lancastrian, albeit the most ungrateful, to find Edward's conciliatory hand outstretched was Henry Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, one of the chief commanders at Towton, and a man whose opposition to the Yorkists had been most motivated by hate and fear. Somerset fled the realm in 1461 and had been attainted in his absence. But after becoming embroiled in the castle wars of Northumbria in 1462, he had been captured at Bamborough and surrendered himself to the king's custody. Instead of executing, humiliating, or otherwise punishing Somerset, as Queen Margaret surely would have done had her side been victorious at Towton and a Yorkist of Henry Beaufort's status fallen into her custody, Edward treated the 28-year-old duke with an amazing degree of affection and forgiveness. One chronicler noted, with astonishment, that Somerset lodged with the king in his own bed many nights, and sometimes rode a-hunting behind the king, with the royal bodyguard containing as many of Somerset's men as Edward's. The king loved him well, was a chronicler's judgment, and it was quite accurate. Within six months of his capture at Bamborough, Somerset's attainder had been reversed, and his estates restored. He was allowed to serve in arms alongside Warwick, and he was invited to great tournaments in the south. It was a lightning political rehabilitation. Not everyone was overjoyed, and a correspondent, John Burney, wrote from Norfolk to John Paston, complaining that there was much grumbling among local Yorkists, who thought that the king's great enemies and oppressors of the commons were rewarded instead of punished, while not enough of the spoils of victory found their way to such as have assisted his highness. But Edward had made up his mind. He would use Somerset as living proof that he could govern as a king, drawing the whole realm and not just his partisan allies to his side. Unfortunately, Somerset's rapid rehabilitation was followed by an equally swift fall from grace. While enjoying Edward's hospitality, the Duke thought treason under fair cheer and words. In late November 1463, Somerset rode to Northumberland to meet with the enfeebled Henry VI and rouse insurrection anew. It took two battles in the far north, at Hedgeley Moor on April the 25th, 1464, and at Hexham on May the 15th, to squash the rebellion and rout the final embers of Lancastrian revolt for good. Lord Montague led the royal forces at both battles. 
Somerset was captured at Hexham and executed the following day, along with several dozen other Lancastrian renegades. It is in the context of all of this, and not the confections of many later chroniclers and poets, who piled romantic myth onto the fact of the king's affection for his new wife, that we must see Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. He was trying desperately, probably too desperately, both to endow trusted allies old and new with the landed power and royal trust that he needed to secure his kingdom, and to extend the hand of friendship to those who had found themselves on the wrong side of the civil war. He hadn't been wildly successful in concentrating his efforts on the more senior Lancastrian families, for as well as Somerset's treachery, Edward had also tried and failed to bring Sir Rafe Percy to reconciliation, and had found his generosity abused. At precisely the time that he secretly married Elizabeth Woodville, the Nevilles were once again taking to the field to defend his crown in the north while other allies were ducking down and covering their ears against the boom of siege guns as they tried to subdue obdurate defenders of northern castles. Edward was becoming over-reliant on his long-standing allies and frustratingly unable to bring his long-standing enemies within his peace. Then, between the battles of Hedgeley Moor and Hexham, Edward found himself close to Grafton, in the presence of a moderately famous, if second-rate, Lancastrian family, a daughter of whom happened to be extremely sexually attractive to him. Elizabeth had been dealing very closely with Edward's chamberlain and confidant, Lord Hastings, in making a deal to protect her share of her late husband's lands from the Boucher family, who had a claim to them. Her name and her situation were therefore unquestionably familiar to the king, and with Hastings' blessing, Elizabeth had probably put her case to Edward in person. Thus he knew her by sight, and understood her background thoroughly. Here was the eldest daughter of a Lancastrian family actively seeking royal favour and patronage. A covert marriage must have seemed like a policy that had very few serious risks and a number of positive advantages. This was a bride who would demonstrate Edward's commitment to even-handed kingship, but whose family wasn't so grand or proud as to feel they had anything to gain by wrecking his trust. There was an important foreign dimension, too. Since a domestic marriage that could be explained by the romantic impulsiveness of a young and callow king also meant that Edward could avoid marrying Bona of Savoy, avoid committing his foreign policy so early in the reign to France, and avoid upsetting his Burgundian allies, whose favour and trade was vital to the health of London's merchants. The marriage would prove embarrassing to the Earl of Warwick, who was leading the foreign negotiations, but Warwick had benefited more than handsomely enough from the Yorkist victory. To take a bride of the Neville family's choosing would have reinforced the already unpleasantly strong perception that Edward was Warwick's puppet king. To fly in the face of his ally made the point that in marriage, as in all other things, it was the king's ultimate prerogative to do as he and he alone chose. Still, 
The wedding was made in secrecy, perhaps in the hope that it could be denied if necessary, and then kept quiet until such time as an announcement became politic or unavoidable. That time was Michaelmas 1464, when his council pushed him to commit to a foreign marriage. This was the moment at which his crown was secure enough to admit to a controversial decision, but also at which he could forestall a decision on a French marriage no longer. Thus the shock and surprise on Michaelmas Day, when Elizabeth Woodville was presented to the English court at Reading, processing into the public presence on the arms of the fourteen-year-old George, Duke of Clarence, the king's heir presumptive, and a somewhat disgruntled Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. Sand crunched underfoot on London Bridge as Elizabeth Woodville crossed the River Thames and entered England's capital to be crowned a queen. During the previous winter, the bridge had been cleaned and cleared of its foul vapours, and forty-five loads of sand were dumped along its length to assure the grip below the feet of the many lords, ladies, and dignitaries who were to cross it in the weekend of celebrations that followed. It was Friday, May the 24th, 1465, and the kingdom was about to welcome not only a new queen, but also a whole new generation of nobles, all learning their places in a world still being rebuilt. As ever, when celebrating a moment of great royal dignity, London put on a spectacular show. The centre of the bridge was awash with colour, in the form of a massive stage, draped in cloth and paper, in gold and green, black and white, red and purple, which provided the setting for actors and actresses dressed as blonde-headed angels, their wings made from hundreds of dazzling peacock feathers. Another actor, dressed as St. Elizabeth, read a greeting while the high-pitched voices of boys rang out from the windows of St. Thomas's Chapel, singing songs of praise to the incoming Queen. The whole of London, as was customary, thronged with crowds and pageants, and Elizabeth, like so many queens before her, took her stately progress through the cramped but well-scrubbed streets, absorbing the proud scene that unfolded before her. Two days later, on Whit Sunday, May the 26th, 1465, she was crowned in Westminster Abbey, having been met in the hall of the adjacent palace by the youthful figures of Clarence and John Mowbray, 4th Duke of Norfolk and Marshal of England, who had inherited the duchy on the death of his father in November 1461. Clarence was fifteen and a half, and Mowbray only twenty, both on the cusp of manhood, but gilded with the highest rank and title. They met the new queen in the saddle, riding about the crowded Westminster Hall on great thick-backed horses draped in gold-embroidered cloth. They greeted her, and the party then processed from the palace to the abbey. Beside the new queen walked the king's sister, Elizabeth, Duchess of Suffolk, then twenty-one, and the queen's sister, Margaret, eleven years old, and betrothed to the Earl of Arundel's heir. These young ladies were accompanied by forty other dignified women, ranging from duchesses to ladies' bannerets, all of them dressed in scarlet, with miniver and ermine marking out the highest ranking from the lowest, 
Bobbing above the crowd were the Queen's youngest sister, Catherine, aged about seven, and her betrothed, Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, who at ten years old was a grandson and heir of the old Duke killed at the Battle of Northampton. This tiny couple was afforded the best view in the house, carried on the shoulders of squires above the throng of glorious nobility below. Once this glittering party was in the abbey, it witnessed a long and lavish crowning. Masses and the Te Deum were sung. Elizabeth sat, stood, and sat again with scepters in her hands and a crown on her head. Then she returned to Westminster Hall for her coronation feast, surrounded and honoured by more nobles. Some, like Henry Boucher, Earl of Essex, were senior men of the realm, but most of the prominent men in ceremonial positions were of the Queen's own generation. Twenty-four-year-old John de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, stood at her right hand, holding one of her scepters. The twenty-two-year-old John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, following his father's and elder brother's executions for treason, served water from a bowl held by Clarence. The hall blazed with splendour and pomp. Tables groaned with food and drink, and minstrels' music blared out from every different shape and size of instrument. Trumpets blew solemnly as every course of the feast was brought before the Queen's table. It was a deliberately youthful pageant, wholly appropriate to a fresh and unconventional monarchy. And at the heart of it all was a group of young men and women who had been flung to the front of the English political world within the space of a few months. If the battles of the 1450s and early 1460s had been fought between aging men, quarrelling about feuds that reached back for decades, Elizabeth's coronation raised up a generation that might be freed from the bloody binds of the past. The Queen's coronation was followed by a great coup for Edward's rule. During the unrest that had led to the battles of Hedgeley Moor and Hexham in 1464, the exiled Henry VI had been smuggled from Scotland into England. For the year that followed, he was on the run in the far north, cooped up in the few remaining Lancastrian strongholds and hiding from his enemies. At first he took cover in the massive coastal fortress at Bamborough, but when that was shot to pieces by Warwick's cannons, Henry moved on, first to Bywell Castle in Northumberland, before retreating later into more remote hiding places, tucked away across the rugged and chilly Pennines. At sometimes he stayed with one John Machel in the Cumbrian manor of Crackenthorpe. At others, he hid among sympathetic communities of monks. He was more fugitive than returning king, and eventually he was neither. One day in mid-July 1465, Henry was eating dinner with another of his shelterers, Sir Richard Tempest of Waddington Hall near Clitheroe in Lancashire, when a large party of men, including Sir Richard's brother, John Tempest, burst into the dining room and tried to arrest him. In the scramble, Henry was able to flee from the house into the nearby woods, taking with him a handful of loyal servants. But his days of roaming had come to an end. On July the 13th, the deposed king and his attendants were tracked down and taken prisoner at Bungerley Hippingston's, a crossing point of the River Ribble. Henry was lifted onto a horse, his legs bound to the stirrup,
and marched triumphantly from Lancashire to London, where he was placed in the Tower of London, there to remain indefinitely. He was fed reasonably well, given wine from the new king's cellars, occasionally allowed a new velvet gown, and allowed visitors, even if they were carefully vetted by his jailers. Perhaps most surprising of all, the deposed and imprisoned King Henry wasn't murdered. This had been the fate of the two Plantagenet kings who had lost their crowns before him. Edward II died while in custody at Barclay Castle in 1327, while Richard II was killed at Pontefract in 1400, the year following his deposition. Ironically, Henry's survival was perhaps a mark of his uniquely pitiful and ineffectual approach to kingship, for it was much harder to justify killing a man who had done nothing evil or tyrannical, but had earned his fate thanks to his dewy-eyed simplicity. Permitting Henry to remain alive was a bold decision that Edward IV would come to regret, but in 1465 it must have struck the king as a brave and magnanimous act. With Henry in gentle confinement and his enemies in the north contained, Edward's reign began to develop a sense of normality. His marriage to Elizabeth, surprising as it may have been both at home and abroad, allowed him to start growing his base of royal support. The Queen's large family made it possible to start knitting many of the other great families of England within the new royal house. Two years after the royal marriage, five of the Queen's sisters were married. Young Catherine was already wedded to the underage Duke of Buckingham. A welter of other matches followed. Anne and Joan Woodville were married to the heirs to the Earls of Essex and Kent, respectively. Two more sisters, Jaquetta and Mary, were matched with Lord Strange and the heir to Lord Herbert, who would later become Earl of Pembroke. Anthony Woodville, the eldest of the brothers, was married to the heiress of Lord Scales and used the title himself from 1462. Thomas Gray, Elizabeth's eldest son, married Anne Holland, daughter of the Duke of Exeter. This spider's web of matches between the Queen's relations and the young men and women of the English aristocracy formed links between the new royal family and the future generations of noble dynasties with estates, interests and followers all across the realm, planting new threads of royal connection from East Anglia and the Midlands to Wales and the West Country. But before long, the creation of this sprawling new royal affinity became a matter of contention between Edward and the man who felt he was owed most of all by the new regime. As the Woodvilles increased their power and Edward grew in confidence, so the Earl of Warwick began to feel more and more uneasy. A succession of clashes over policy and personalities was coming to a head between the king and his greatest subject. The two men, whose family alliance had secured the Yorkist crown, were about to blow the entire project apart. Chapter 14 Diverse Times from the very beginning of his reign, Edward was determined to present himself as a king not merely by right of conquest, 
but by right of blood and birth, even destiny. Following his coronation in 1461, he commissioned for public display a vast 20-foot illuminated manuscript roll illustrating his ancient claim to be a king, not only king of England and France, but also of Castile, to which the House of York occasionally trumpeted its right. The coronation roll that was produced after months of painstaking work, sometime before the king's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville in 1464, was a mass of colours, names, heraldic devices, and dynastic tables. At the top towered Edward, resplendent in plate armour, aboard a bright liveried warhorse, a huge sword in his right hand, a gold crown on his head, and a smile of regal triumph on his red lips. Below this magnificent figure stretched a genealogical chart packed with detail, explaining the king's descent from Adam and Eve down through Noah and out into all the known ages of human history, until they coalesced in the three main royal lines of England, France and Castile, all flowing through Richard, Duke of York, and down into an eight-pointed star, representing Edward once again. All over this extraordinary public demonstration of the king's blood-born, heavenly-ordained royalty were Edward's favourite personal symbols, the fetterlock that his father had worn on his robes when he first claimed the crown in 1460, the black bull representing the Mortimer family's true claim to the English crown, the arms of Cadwallader, ancient king of the Britons, the golden sun recalling both the true Plantagenet line descending to Richard II and, more recently, Edward's victory at Mortimer's Cross, and most frequent of all, the five-pointed white rose, the blazing symbol of the House of York. For all this magnificent visual posturing, the House of York needed to produce an heir. The king had two younger brothers, George, Duke of Clarence, and Richard, Duke of Gloucester, and three sisters, Anne, Duchess of Exeter, Elizabeth, Duchess of Suffolk, and Margaret of York. But his reign would only really acquire security when he produced a son and heir. For this reason, much excitement greeted Queen Elizabeth's confinement in the new royal apartments of the Palace of Westminster during the early days of 1466, to be delivered of her first child. The baby was born on February the 11th, in a room staffed solely by women, into which not even the Queen's personal physician, Dr. Dominic de Sirego, was allowed. It was a healthy child, although not the boy that the King had been hoping for. The infant was called Elizabeth a name that had some distant Plantagenet history, as well as running in the Woodville family. Both the baby and the mother were treated with all honour and reverence. Remarkably, Elizabeth was the first princess to have been born to a reigning Queen of England for more than one hundred years, and she was given an appropriately splendid christening, at which her grandmothers, Cecily, Duchess of York, and Jaquetta, Duchess of Bedford, both stood as godmothers. Beside them, as the tiny baby was baptised, was the prince's godfather, Richard, Earl of Warwick. What Warwick was thinking at the time of the christening will never be known, 
If he was seriously disaffected by Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville, then at this point he was biting his tongue. Certainly he was still gaining handsomely from his position as the greatest magnate under the king. He presided over the lavish churching ceremony to welcome the queen back into society following the princess's birth, a public prominence that recalled his ostentatious accompaniment of the captive King Henry VI through the streets of London in July 1465. He was commissioned to seek a treaty with Burgundy in the spring of 1466, notwithstanding his clear preference for a treaty with France. The following February, he was allowed to take a massive entourage on a diplomatic embassy to Louis XI, in which he gifted the French king English dogs and was rewarded with chests full of money, textiles, and gold and silver plate. At home, he was showered with lands and offices, the castle of Cockermouth in Cumberland, the hereditary office of sheriff in Westmoreland, custody of all royal forests north of the Trent, profits of all the royal gold and silver mines in the same region, and wardship of the lands of the wealthy peer, Lord Lovell, when that gentleman died and left an underage heir. Warwick was rich, and getting richer. All the same, against this background of royal patronage, favour and delegated power, divisions were opening along several lines between the king and his greatest noblemen. And as the first decade of Edward's reign wore on, Warwick would come to feel that all the power and riches in the world couldn't satisfy his desire for more. The biggest area of disagreement was over foreign policy. Warwick's desire to come to terms with France, rather than to pursue an alliance with Burgundy, the favoured policy of the Queen's father, now Earl Rivers, hadn't dimmed. Edward indulged him to a degree, but while Warwick was absent courting the French, the King directly undermined his mission by receiving in great splendour a rival embassy led by Antony, the Grand Batard of Burgundy, Philip the Good's second eldest son, born to one of his many mistresses. Like Edward IV, the bastard was renowned for his taste for fine living, dazzlingly bejeweled clothes, and beautiful women. He was a boon companion and an excellent sportsman, famous as one of the most skillful archers in northern Europe. He was fond of jousting, and when he arrived in England during the spring of 1467, Edward greeted him with every honour. A tournament had been arranged between the bastard and Anthony Woodville, Lord Scales, to be held at West Smithfield, just outside the walls of the city of London. As gravel and sand from the banks of the Thames were carted to the tournament ground, and a great viewing platform built by the king's carpenters, the bastard was treated to rides along the Thames in barges hung with tapestry and gold cloth. He slept in gold-hung beds at his London lodgings, and was generally borne about the town with all the reverence due to a king. The tournament, held from June the 11th to June the 14th, 1467, was a success, despite a disappointing first day on which Scales lanced the bastard's horse, a dastardly move held to be quite contrary to the rules of the joust, which left the animal so bruised that he died a while after. On the second day, the two men fought on foot with battle axes, 
going at each other so fiercely that eventually the king had to intervene, commanding them to stop and refusing their request to finish the fight with daggers. The event ended happily, with the two lords embracing and everyone celebrating the end of the tournament with a huge feast, attended by scores of stunningly dressed young English ladies. There could have been no greater show of comradeship and courtly affection between the ruling families of England and Burgundy. The bastard's visit was cut short by news of the death of his father, Duke Philip the Good, on June the 15th. Nevertheless, his departure from the realm concluded a visit that had illustrated the king's clear desire for friendship. Duke Philip's death broke off Warwick's embassy to France. He returned laden with silver and gold, but aware that in his absence his standing in foreign affairs had been badly damaged, and things were no better at home, where his brother George, Archbishop of York's ejection from the office of Chancellor, an event buried beneath the blaze of the Bastard of Burgundy's visit, meant that the family had been removed from their central position in the administration of domestic government, too. As the archbishop fell from grace, the king's father-in-law, Earl Rivers, was rewarded with promotion to the offices of treasurer and constable, a pair of offices that gave him sweeping powers over royal finance and military might. It looked like a coup designed to put the Nevilles in their place. Warwick had done too much to put Edward on the throne to bear this double slight with equanimity. Following the death of Philip the Good, Edward's alliance with Burgundy grew steadily closer. He conceived it as part of a broad anti-French strategy in which alliances could be constructed with a ring of France's mutual enemies. Treaties of friendship were also signed with Brittany, Denmark, and Castile, and were pursued with Aragon and Armagnac. In October 1467, the king's clever, courtly, and well-educated sister Margaret agreed to marry Charles, the new Duke of Burgundy, later nicknamed the Bold, turning down no less than four matches proposed by Louis XI. Just as at Princess Elizabeth's christening, Warwick played a central ceremonial role in the king's sister's marriage. In May 1468, he accompanied Margaret as she left London by the Pilgrim Road to Canterbury, headed for the busy port of Margate on the Isle of Thanet, whence she would set sail aboard a ship called the New Ellen for the Netherlands and her new life as Duchess at the dazzling court of Burgundy. Warwick and Margaret rode in splendour together on the back of the same horse, he in front and she right behind him. Despite his role in Margaret's departure and the continued flow of royal gifts, Warwick's discomfiture was becoming obvious. The Warwick chronicler believed that Margaret's marriage made decisive his breach with the king, and yet they were accorded diverse times, but they never loved together after. Warwick had been forced to accept two other obnoxious matches. The queen's son, Thomas Grey, had married the king's niece, Anne Holland, the only daughter and heiress of Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter, despite the fact that Warwick's nephew had been promised Anne's hand. Then, a far more grotesque and insulting marriage was arranged between the twenty-year-old John Woodville and Catherine Neville, 
Warwick's aunt and the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk. Catherine wasn't only a four-time widow, but also about sixty-five years old. The medieval marriage market was more usually organized according to the principles of political advancement than romance, but there were certain limits of good taste. If anything could be said to symbolize the impertinence of the Woodvilles, it was this nakedly grasping match between a vigorous upstart barely out of his teens and a blue-blooded crone. One chronicler, cattily estimating that the Duchess was a bride again at the young age of eighty, called it a diabolical marriage. Warwick had two daughters, Isabel, born in 1451, and Anne, five years younger, who were at or approaching marriageable age. He had no sons, and thus his family's future depended on their making good matches. Warwick's great desire was for Isabel to marry George, Duke of Clarence. But in early 1467, amid a seemingly incessant parade of matches between the king's and queen's families and the rest of the English nobility, Edward IV declined to allow it. This, along with the steady drip of other insults, was enough to drive Warwick into a deep sulk. By January 1468, he had retreated to his northern estates and repeatedly refused to attend the king's council at Coventry if Lord Herbert, Earl Rivers, or Lord Scales were present. His appearance at Margaret of York's departure for Burgundy was one of the last times that he engaged in any meaningful public way on the side of a king whom he had made, but could no longer control. He was, as one chronicler put it, deeply offended. By 1468, Edward's kingly experience was growing and his family was expanding. A second daughter, named Mary, was born in August 1467, and a third, Cecily, would follow in March 1469. But the problems of a usurper king hadn't entirely left him. The threat to his crown was much reduced, not least because Henry VI continued to languish at the Tower of London, but it hadn't entirely vanished. Having offended Louis XI by allying with Burgundy, Edward had exposed himself to renewed French backing of plots against his throne. In June 1468, Jasper Tudor was funded to launch a small invasion of Wales. He landed at Harlech Castle, raided his way across North Wales, captured Denby Castle, and proclaimed Henry VI to be the true king at many sessions and assizes held in the old king's name. Tudor was beaten back to the sea within weeks by an army under Lord Herbert, who captured the supposedly impregnable Harlech Castle, a bastion of defiant Welsh Lancastrianism ever since Edward's accession. Lord Herbert was rewarded for his efforts with his foe's old title of Earl of Pembroke. The less fortunate captains of Harlech, including one John Trueblood, were taken to London and beheaded in the Tower. But this wasn't the end of Edward IV's troubles. Jasper Tudor's invasion was followed by rumours of other plots. That year were many men impeached of treason, wrote one chronicler. The London aldermen, Sir Thomas Cook and Sir John Plummer, and the sheriff, Humphrey Hayford, were accused of plotting and deprived of their offices, while a noble conspiracy was detected involving John de Vere, heir to the Earl of Oxford, 
who had been beheaded in February 1462, and the heirs of the Courtney and Hungerford families. De Vere was imprisoned and eventually pardoned, but the other two were condemned and killed in early 1469. And so it was across the realm. Diverse times in diverse places of England, men were arrested for treason, and some were put to death, and some escaped, recalled one writer. As the plot seemed to spiral, England was becoming generally more violent. A spate of aristocratic warmongering was the subject of complaint during the summer parliament of 1467, which implored the king to deal with the homicides, murders, riots, extortions, rapes of women, robberies, and other crimes which had been habitually and lamentably committed and perpetrated throughout the realm. It's hard to know now whether the increased sensitivity to conspiracy was genuinely the sign of more dangerous times or of paranoia in the king's council. From late 1467 there had been rumours that Warwick was in touch with Margaret of Anjou, who was living in uncomfortably impoverished exile with a small court of dissidents at her father's castle of Kerr, 150 miles east of Paris. Even if these rumours were nothing more than baseless gossip, the Earl's cold and obstructive behaviour in early 1468 did nothing to suggest his total loyalty to the regime. And indeed, when another front of disorder and opposition to Edward's rule opened in 1469, Warwick finally decided to abandon the king and throw in his lot with a man who might prove to be more pliable. But it wasn't a Lancastrian. Rather, Warwick decided to make use of the man who would be his son-in-law, Edward's own brother and still his male heir, George, Duke of Clarence. At the beginning of 1468, Clarence was eighteen years old. Like Edward, he was capable of charm and wit, and he shared with the king what one writer called outstanding talent. He was smooth, elegantly attractive, and sharp-tongued, possessed of such mastery of popular eloquence that nothing upon which he set his heart seemed difficult for him to achieve. His childhood under his brother's rule had been spent in large part at Greenwich Palace, where he lived with the now-departed Margaret and his younger brother Richard, Duke of Gloucester. He had been recognised as an adult on July the 10th, 1466, still only sixteen years old, when he paid formal homage to the king and was rewarded with possession of massive estates centred on Tutbury Castle in Staffordshire a large and modern fortress protected with thick curtain walls and several towers with luxurious residential apartments inside, warmed by giant fireplaces hewn from huge blocks of locally quarried stone. As an important property of the Duchy of Lancaster, Tutbury had once belonged to Queen Margaret, who spent a great deal on its improvements. It was a commanding position from which he could survey the sprawling patchwork of lands that he now controlled. Amid this luxury, Clarence enjoyed mastery of the biggest and most lavish household staff of any nobleman in England, consisting of nearly 400 people at an annual cost of £4,500. But if Clarence was superficially attractive, handsomely gifted and indulged by his elder brother, 
He was also glib, shallow, and spoiled. Like Warwick, extravagant royal favour only served to increase his ambition. He was bewitched by his own magnificence, and like Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and perhaps like his own father, he saw his position as the king's male heir as licensed to create an ostentatious alternative court. This instinct would lead him into trouble, for while he could at times perform as a competent magnate, settling the debates of his tenants and subordinates, he was a willful, self-centred, and infuriating man, with a penchant for skullduggery and schemes. One such scheme was to pursue marriage to Warwick's eldest daughter, Isabel. From a royal point of view, it would have been considerably more useful for Clarence to have entered into a union with a foreign princess than a Neville. Charles the Bold's daughter Mary was briefly considered. This may well have been what Edward was considering when he flatly refused to endorse the marriage in early 1467, though it is more likely that he simply wished to avoid connecting his two greatest nobles by allowing a marriage alliance between them. Warwick's power needed no bolstering via a direct link to the adult royal heir, traditionally a hub around which opposition to the crown would gather. The politics of the Midlands, meanwhile, would be thrown horribly out of balance by joining together the two most powerful lords in the region. Warwick began plainly to chafe against the restriction. To the king's clear concern, his brother George, young, impressionable, and used to getting his own way, fell under Warwick's spell. The consequences of a Warwick-Clarence alliance against the king, whom each should have had every duty to serve and obey, became clear from the spring of 1469. It began in April with a series of popular riots in Yorkshire, as large numbers of local men convened under the leadership of a figure calling himself Robin of Reesdale, or Robin Mendor, a sort of Jack Cade of the North, whose name was very clearly a nod to the popular outlaw ballads that had by this time been in circulation for more than a century, and whose heroes, Robin Hood, Adam Bell, and Gamelin, embodied the ideal of the wronged man who imposes rough justice on corrupt officials. There were a number of likely causes for this disorder, high among them long-standing local disgruntlement at the demands of St. Leonard's Hospital in York, which had long levied the Petercorn, attacks on arable farmers in Yorkshire, Lancashire, Westmoreland and Cumberland. The master of the hospital had the previous year secured his right to the tax in Edward's Court of Chancery. Under Robin Reedsdale, a spate of rioting whipped across the country. It was put down by Warwick's younger brother, John Neville, Earl of Northumberland, the hero of Hedgeley Moor and Hexham, and one of the Crown's most reliable men of the North. But within two months, Reedsdale had sprung up again, and this time the Neville family weren't the scourges of the rebels, but their covert sponsors. The second wave of rebellion, which took place in June and July of 1469, was significantly different from the first. The leader still went under the name Robin of Reedsdale, but was in this case either Sir John Conyers of Hornby, Warwick's steward at Midlam Castle and an experienced soldier, or else a puppet of the same. 
Whereas the disorder earlier in the year had focused on local disaffection, now, said one writer, the people complained that they were grievously oppressed with taxes and annual tributes by the said favourites of the king and queen. A regional uprising had been stirred up into a protest against national government. The second Reesdale rising was secretly supported by Warwick with the aim of causing the king maximum discomfort, and it was done with great effect. There was talk of a popular army of 60,000 men being mustered in Yorkshire. The disturbances were beginning to resemble what the chroniclers called a great insurrection and a whirlwind from the north. Edward set off to deal with the rising in mid-June, accompanied by his youngest brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, along with Earl Rivers, Lord Scales, and a number of his other Woodville relatives. At first, Edward failed to calculate how dangerous the situation had become, but as he rode north it began to dawn on the king that this was more than a local rising, and he sent out urgent demands to the towns and cities of the Midlands to send him archers and men. He also wrote to Clarence, Warwick, and George Neville, Archbishop of Canterbury, sending each a terse note on July the 9th, demanding that they come unto his highness with all urgency. And we nay trust that ye should be of any such disposition towards us as the rumour here runneth, considering the trust and affection we bear in you, he added in his letter to Warwick. But as the wax was hardening on the king's letters, Warwick, the Archbishop, and Clarence were on their way to the military stronghold of Calais, taking with them the Earl's daughter, Isabel. On July the 11th, Clarence and Isabel were married in Calais, in direct defiance of the king. The following day, Warwick and his allies wrote an open letter to the king in support of the Robin of Reedsdale rising. The letter called for reform, accusing Rivers, Scales, Sir John Woodville, the Earl of Pembroke, and his brother Sir William Herbert, and Humphrey Stafford, Earl of Devon, as well as others around the king, of allowing the realm to fall in great poverty of misery, only intending to their own promotion and enriching, and warning darkly that the fate that had befallen Edward II, Richard II, and Henry VI might just as easily be visited upon Edward IV. They also named Earl Rivers's wife, Jaquetta, Duchess of Bedford, as a malign influence on the king. Jaquetta would later be accused of having used witchcraft to engineer the king's marriage to her daughter, Elizabeth Woodville, and of creating lead models of Warwick, Edward and the Queen, for the purposes of sorcery. A manifesto for reform was attached to the letter, supposedly belonging to the rebels, although as it took an almost exclusively national outlook and was riddled from beginning to end with a sort of political jargon in whose uses the Earl of Warwick was the most practised man alive, it was likely to have been either strongly influenced from or wholly manufactured in Calais. The Northern Rising, swelling by the day, was led by Warwick's relatives and friends. As Sir John Conyers and his son of the same name, Sir Henry Neville and Henry Fitzhugh marched their northerners toward the Midlands, Warwick and Clarence returned to England from Calais, landing in Kent on July the 16th. Two days later, they began a push up the country to join forces 
with Robin of Reedsdale. They stopped briefly in London before sweeping up the road toward Coventry, gathering men as they rode. Edward, camped with his army at Nottingham, now found a pincer closing rapidly around him. His best hope for repelling the rebels was to receive reinforcements from Wales under the Earl of Pembroke and from the West Country under the Earl of Devon. On Wednesday, July the 26th, Pembroke's and Devon's men had reached Banbury in northern Oxfordshire and were camped in the broad fields surrounding the town when they were attacked without warning by the northern army. The main body of the royal army was separated from the archers and they thus went into battle severely hampered. A great battle was fought and a most dreadful slaughter especially of the Welsh ensued, wrote one chronicler who reckoned that four thousand men were killed on the battlefield known as Hedgecote or Edgecote. The considerable disarray among Pembroke's men was worsened when a small band of warriors bearing the Earl of Warwick's arms arrived on the battlefield, causing panic in the lines and leading many to take flight. The end result was terrible casualties on both sides, ending with an overwhelming victory for the rebels. The rebel leaders, Sir Henry Neville and Sir John Conyers the Younger, were killed, but the battle was best remembered in Wales, as the bloody fate of the Welsh infantry was shared by their commanders. The poet, Lewis Glyn Cothi, called it the mightiest battle of Christendom. During the fighting, Pembroke and his brother Sir Richard Herbert were captured and taken as prisoners to Northampton, where they were met by the Earl of Warwick. On Thursday, July the 27th, Warwick held a summary and utterly illegal trial, pronounced a death sentence, and had both beheaded. Panic spread. News of the disaster at Edgecote took several days to reach Edward IV, but when it did, his men scattered from his side. Alone and totally exposed, the king was taken prisoner at Olney in Buckinghamshire by a party led by Archbishop George Neville. His horse was harnessed to his captors, and he was escorted to Warwick Castle, the vast and unbreachable Midland seat of the Nevilles, to be held captive while his associates were hunted down. Throughout August, Warwick's men stalked England, capturing those men who had served the king and murdering them. Earl Rivers and Sir John Woodville were run to ground in Chepstow and taken to Kenilworth, where both were beheaded. The Earl of Devon was taken by the Commons in Bridgewater, Somerset, and there right beheaded. Despite the fact that Warwick and Clarence were acting effectively alone, mustering their own vast resources rather than manifesting the will of any wider portion of the nobility or the realm, it had taken them less than three months to take command of the king, butcher his allies, and assume control of the government. Edward had spent the best part of a decade establishing his birthright, starting a new royal family, rebuilding a secure crown and a stable government, and reasserting the majesty of English kingship. And yet, in the late summer of 1469, he found himself in the same predicament as his predecessor. Two kings were now prisoners of their own subjects. Seizing the crown, 
had become all too easy. Chapter 15 Final Destruction Like Richard, Duke of York, before him, Richard, Earl of Warwick, found it a great deal simpler to capture a king than to govern in his name. From Warwick Castle in the heart of the Midlands, the Earl moved Edward to Midland Castle, the magnificent stone-walled stronghold that loomed over the Yorkshire Dales. But as news filtered across England and Wales of the king's captivity, the realm erupted into violence and disorder, which proved quite beyond Warwick's capacity to control. For while he had the royal person, this was by no means the same as having royal authority. In London there was a burst of robbery, rioting, and open violence, barely kept in check by the efforts of Burgundian ambassadors, who happened to be in the city. Elsewhere, noble quarrels spilled over into private wars, waves from Cheshire and Lancashire to Gloucestershire and Norfolk, where the Paston family was forced to defend its castle at Caister from a siege laid to it by the Duke of Norfolk, who had the place sore broken with guns. Warwick's realm was alive with the boom of cannons, the hum of arrows and the crackle of flames licking ruined buildings. Even in Yorkshire, Warwick couldn't keep order as the king's teenage brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, took up arms in a dispute against Lord Stanley. Worst of all, rumours circulated in Wales suggesting that a Lancastrian revival would shortly be underway somewhere in the realm, and so it proved. In August, two members of a renegade branch of the House of Neville raised Henry VI's banner in northern England. The Earl of Warwick found himself unable to offer an effectual resistance, wrote one chronicler, for the people, seeing their king detained as a prisoner, refused to take notice of proclamations until Edward was set at his liberty. Warwick had no choice. Edward was free by the middle of October. Sir John Paston watched the king ride into the city of London in splendour, surrounded by a large posse of loyal lords, including Gloucester, Suffolk, and Lord Hastings, the mayor, and all the city aldermen, two hundred guild members, and what Paston described in a letter as a thousand horses, some harnessed and some not. The king had crushed the northern rebellion with ease, issued a general pardon to the rank and file, and was set on reasserting himself in the realm at large, an end he pursued with almost ominous good cheer. Paston noted with some trepidation that while the king himself hath good language of Warwick, Clarence, and their small group of allies, including the Earl of Oxford, saying they be his best friends, quite another message was being broadcast by the men of the royal household. Edward was almost always magnanimous after victory over his enemies, but it seemed clear to Sir John Paston, at least, that a great reckoning couldn't be far away. Only two serious reorganizations took place in the aftermath of Warwick's and Clarence's revolt. The first was enforced. Wales had been deprived of its leading nobleman when William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, was beheaded after the Battle of Edgecote. In Herbert's place, Edward promoted his own brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. 
Aged seventeen, Gloucester was growing into an able soldier and a trustworthy lieutenant. Tall but slender, and not as physically striking as either Edward or Clarence, Gloucester was a tenacious and loyal young man in whom Edward saw a great future. He made him constable of England in place of the executed Earl Rivers, justiciar of North and South Wales, and steward of the whole principality. In effect, Richard became the king's hand beyond the western marches. He took to his role with some enthusiasm and purpose. Edward also moved to weaken some of the Neville's power in the north. John Neville, Earl of Northumberland, had remained loyal during his brother's rebellions. All the same, Edward decided that there were advantages in moving his territorial base away from northern England. The king released Henry Percy from long-term imprisonment in the Tower of London, restored him to his father's lands in the north, and gave him Neville's title of Earl of Northumberland. Historically, the Percys had been the dominant family in the north, a fact changed only by the ascendancy of the Nevilles in the 1450s. Now Edward was moving to restore the balance of power. To compensate John Neville for his losses, he was created Marquis Montague and awarded a huge tract of land in southwest England, another area of perpetual bloodletting and chaos which had fallen vacant on the death of the Earl of Devon. Neville's young son George was created Duke of Bedford and betrothed to the king's daughter, Elizabeth of York, who turned four years old in the spring of 1470. It looked like a handsome settlement for a loyal man which served to restore some balance to the power politics of northern England while injecting a degree of much-needed experience into the southwest. Unfortunately, it would prove to have serious consequences for Edward's rule. In March 1470, another rebellion broke out. This time it was Lincolnshire that rose up. Initially, due to a bitter private feud between the local peer Lord Wells and Willoughby and Sir Thomas Burrough, a bodyguard and close servant of the king. In response, Edward raised an army and marched north to put an end to the violence. The sight of the king marching at the head of an army sent rumours whirling around the north as speculation mounted that bloody revenge was on its way for the events of 1469. As Lord Wells and his son Sir Robert parlayed these fears into all-out insurrection, a desperate Warwick decided to raise an army and throw in with the rebels once more. Once again, the worthless Clarence decided to join him, despite having assured the king of his allegiance, and the pair aimed at what a government-sponsored account of the Rising later described as the likely utter and final destruction of the king's royal person and the subversion of all the land. After most crises, Edward's instinct was usually toward calmness and reconciliation rather than murderous revenge, but this time he had been provoked too much. He responded with furious aggression. He captured Lord Wells and sent a message to his son that the old man would be killed unless he... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.